Thank you, Eric. Good morning. My name is Adam Casel. I'm the vision and administration pastor here on staff. Dr. Scott Peck, in his classic book, The Road Less Traveled, starts out with this simple sentence, three-word sentence, life is difficult. And as a psychiatrist, he goes on to talk about his years of working with patients. He said the people that will accept that fact that life is difficult are some of the most mentally healthy people that he's worked with. The people that have the greatest challenges are those who live in denial of life being difficult. The, the irony is none of us have signed up for this life. We are all the result of the actions of two other people. We had no say in being born. We had no choice in what we would look like or, or our personalities or anything about us. Now, we may make career decisions, uh, family decisions, or choose to be a part of a ministry knowing it's more difficult. And, and when we're in those times, at least we can say, I chose this. I chose this. But to be here, none of us had that choice. And we are born into a difficult situation. And we have all chosen to still be here and to engage in life on some level. But the other unfortunate fact is that there are no life hacks to true growth, development, or formation. There's no shortcuts. In light of that, we are starting a series in the epistle of James. If you have a Bible with you, I invite you to turn uh, to James chapter 1. If you don't have a Bible and want a, a physical copy, we've got a couple uh, on these subwoofers at the front. Reading, as I've read through James over the years and again uh, more recently in preparation for this series, I think if James had read The Road Less Traveled, he would agree with the first sentence and he would add a clause to it. Here's what I think James might say. He would say, life is difficult and it's a lot more difficult if you're immature. Maybe you've heard one or both of these cliches. If you think education is expensive, try ignorance. Or if you think being healthy is expensive, try being sick. This brief epistle shows us the value of being mature in Christ. It's a, 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 a writing that exhorts us to embrace the challenges of life and that those challenges are not pointless. James is speaking from experience. Now, because we're starting uh, a new series and we're, we're looking at one book of the Bible uh, that we're going to walk through over the next eight weeks, I want to give some background. Because if we better understand uh, background of a, of a book of the Bible, it helps us to, to know how to apply its truths in our lives. So I'm going to share a little bit about who James was, his audience, and his, pur his purpose for writing. Because as I said, if we know the background, uh, it helps us to understand how to apply it in our lives. Because when God inspired people throughout history to write various books of the Bible, he did so within time and space. There was a specific historical, socioeconomic, 
spiritual and political context within which a person was writing. So a little bit about the author, James. Now, James was a very common name at that time. It's been changed throughout the years. You may have heard the urban legend that uh, King James wanted his name in the Bible, so that's why they chose James. That's an urban legend. Not, Not true, but believable, let's be honest. Uh, more likely, at that time, James' name was Jacob, or more specifically, Yaakov, if you like Hebrew. James was the half-brother of Jesus, but he was not one of Jesus' disciples while Jesus was on earth. That James that was, was the brother of John, who also happened to be one of the first martyrs in the church. Now, let's put ourselves in Jesus' family. Could you imagine being the half-sibling of Jesus? Now, let's be honest, there's sibling rivalry in every family. There's competition and comparison that happens in every family. I don't think Mary or Joseph ever said this, but imagine if they were like, why can't you just be more like your brother? (laughs) Here's the teenager response. Oh, I don't know, Mom. Maybe because I'm not fully God and fully man. Maybe because my father's not God. <laughs> what do you do if you're Mary or Joseph in those times? You know, oh, I'm not as good as Jesus. You know, what do you say? Like, yeah. <laughs> you know, most parents can say, oh, like, yeah, they're really smart, but you're really funny, or you're a great athlete. Like, all they could say is, well, you give us the opportunity to practice forgiveness. Not only were Jesus' siblings not his disciples, we see in the Gospels they were worried about his mental state. And at times, they openly mocked him. However, if someone rises from the dead, you've got a choice. Either be in denial or believe what they said. And James chose the latter. He's my brother. I grew up with him. But I think everything he said about himself is true. So James came to believe that Jesus was the Messiah of Israel and the Lord of all the earth. He also became uh, one of the leaders within the church in Jerusalem. It was a large church. Thousands of followers of Jesus were a part of the church of Jerusalem very early on. So on top of walking through life with thousands of people, helping them navigate the challenges of life, they were also persecuted. The early believers in Jerusalem were persecuted by the Romans and by fellow Jews. Now, if you ever read or hear from church leaders in uh, persecuted countries, you know one of the the greatest concerns that they have is that their people, uh, in the midst of persecution, would either deny Jesus or that they would fall away from the faith. So that is likely one of the burdens that James had as a leader in the church in Jerusalem. And we get the sense as we we read through the letter, James is concerned about the authenticity of the faith of his readers and hearers. As if persecution isn't enough, while James was 
pastoring the church in Jerusalem, uh, there was also a famine. And the believers in Jerusalem, they were not immune to that. So the persecution that James was, was living through and the famine that he and his brothers and sisters in Christ had to go through set the tone for this epistle. And again, I think James would say life is difficult, and it's a lot more difficult if you're immature. Now, some other just trivia. I, I think this is fun. Hopefully, you do too. James had two nicknames, James the Just and Camel Knees. James the Just because he was a peacemaker. James, was, he was not a peacekeeper. He was a peacemaker. He was about doing the work of justice, not making everybody happy. He wanted people to mature, not just be comfortable. James was a man who lived out what he taught. You, you get the sense of his concern for justice as you read through what he wrote. Now, the reason he earned the name Camel Knees is because he spent so much time in prayer that his knees developed these gnarly calluses that resembled a camel's. I think I'd like the nickname James the Just, not as much Camel Knees, but... Now, I've called this writing an epistle. Maybe you've heard epistle or letter uh, interchangeable. There are some differences. For example, almost all of Paul's writings, those were letters. Letters tend to be personal, that the, the, the person writing has knowledge of the group that, or person that they are writing to. So they'll, they'll add these personal elements, and we don't get that in James. Part of it is because James has a broad audience, which I'll talk to, talk, speak to in a, in a moment. But I think maybe a way to think of it is, Imagine the, the Lord giving a word for the state of Indiana versus the city of Indianapolis. Now, you probably know Indiana is quite different. Northern Indiana, near Chicago, is going to be really different from southern Indiana down by Kentucky. Right? The city of Indianapolis is quite different from Fort Wayne or Terre Haute, Lafayette, or Bloomington. So this epistle is what they refer to as a Catholic epistle, not because of the Roman Catholic Church, but Catholic means universal. So there are exhortations that, that James has in his writing that would apply to various groups of people in the way that a, a word to the state of Indiana might versus a uh, writing to the, the church in Indianapolis, which would probably share common blessings and challenges. The themes that we see throughout the book are testing, wisdom, and pure speech, and then the contrast of poverty and wealth. We have good evidence that this is likely the first New Testament writing, in part because we don't see any references to the challenges that Paul was dealing with when he wrote and that the, heavy, the, the greatest influences on James are the Sermon on the Mount and Proverbs chapters 1 through 9. So even though Matthew and Luke have not written their, their gospel accounts yet, the Sermon on the Mount was well circulated in the early church, which says something about its importance. 
James' writing style is very different from Paul's. Paul is very linear in how he, he writes and argues what he wants to communicate. James, as we'll see, will, will bring up a topic, say a few things about it, go on to something else, and then come back to that topic that he just spoke about, and then go on to something else. You, you see this throughout the letter. It's a challenging letter, not only in terms of the content, uh, but the way that he also will use some language differently than other New Testament writers, which we'll address when we get to those passages. Now, the last bit of information about the book before we look at our passage this morning, I want to mention the recipients and the purpose for James' writing. So James identifies himself. So James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, and I'll come back to that. And he re- addresses the, the recipients as the 12 tribes scattered among the nations. That's language for the people of Israel. So we don't know if this is a purely Jewish audience that he is writing to, or if there's also Gentile con- converts in there. Uh, but either way, people, believers in, in Jesus still would have been considered Jewish, but they were a part of a sect known as followers of the, of the way. So the purpose of James' writing is to challenge how they, and now we, because it's God's word to us as well, how the readers live, how they love God and love others in practical ways. So we're just going to look at a few verses this morning. So as I said, if you have a Bible, turn with me to James chapter 1. I'm going to read verses 1 through 4. We read, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes scattered among the nations, greetings. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your presence with us. Lord, would you, would you fill this room? Would you fill us? You have something for each one of us this morning. And so give us eyes to see and ears to hear what that is. Thank you for the work that you're doing in our lives. And Lord, I ask that the words of my mouth and the meditations of our heart would be pleasing to you, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. The main thing I want you to take away this morning is that we can rejoice in the midst of trials because they have a purpose. We can rejoice in the midst of trials because they have a purpose. And what we're going to look at this morning is trials with our mindset, 
how trials produce something and that trials have an end. Trials are not an end in themselves, but there is a reason that they are in our lives. And because of that, we can rejoice because trials have a purpose. So the first part of rejoicing in the midst of trials because they have a purpose is our mindset. I mentioned James identifies himself as a servant of God in the Lord Jesus Christ. The word servant there, the the Greek word that James uses, probably is a little more accurately bondservant. Some uh, translations will use slave, but I I think given the the history in our country is very misleading uh, because of what it was the system was at that time. So at that time, a person be, could become a bond servant for a, a variety of reasons. The two main reasons, two most common reasons a person would become a bond servant is they're a prisoner of war. So they were, they were fighting in a, a battle. They lost, and they were part of the spoils. They got brought back and, and would work for somebody for the rest of their life. The other would be if somebody had a debt that they could not pay. And so they would sell themselves to another person and say, you pay my debt and provide my basic necessities. I will work for you until I've paid off uh, what you have paid for me. And so that's the idea that James has in mind when he's calling himself a, a servant. It's more that second one. He realizes his debt has been paid And so he's freely just giving his life to the Lord. So James knew who he was and whose he was. He is not having an identity crisis or a false view of of himself. He's choosing to live as a servant. Another truth that James knew about being, being a servant is that the closer a servant is to the master, the more elevated he or she is. The closer a servant is to the master, the more elevated he or she is. A servant in close relationship to the master actually has a lot of freedom and a lot of responsibilities. There are plenty of examples throughout history in in this system where if a master did not have a a male, a, a son, that they would pass their inheritance on to their servant, their, their top servant, their most trusted servant when they passed away. So James is not in need of a mindset shift or deliverance from an orphan spirit. Because again, he knows who he is and the benefits that are available to him. Throughout scriptures, scripture, we also see precedents for elevated servants Moses was known as a servant of the Lord. David was known as a servant of the Lord. And most of all, our Lord chose to live as a servant. Jesus said about himself, the son of man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. I think this also speaks to James's humility. I don't know about you, but if I were James, I'd be wearing that half-brother of Jesus like a badge of honor. I'd be like, you think of the VIP treatment you'd get. Hey, how you doing, James, half-brother of Jesus? James, half-brother of Jesus, how you doing? Nice to meet you, James, half-brother of Jesus. 
what we see is James does not see his blood relation to Jesus as merit before the Lord or the reason for his position. Throughout the letter or the epistle, James realizes we all serve someone or something. James has chosen to serve the Lord. Because the rest of his writing, he's, he's going to go on to show that we'll either serve the Lord or we're enslaved to foolishness, sin, worldly wisdom, favoritism, lifeless faith, uncontrolled speech, arrogance, or quarrels. So for James, talking about himself as a servant addresses the, this position, what I'm calling a positional mindset when it comes to trials. He's also going to talk about responding to specific or actual trials. So James sees himself as the servant of a good, loving, wise, and powerful king who has his best interests in mind. And knowing that, that helps James to write, when specific trials come, we can have a specific response. And that is consider it pure joy. In the same way that we are servants of Jesus, our thoughts serve us. That word for consider is actually master-servant language has the idea of leading, guiding, or influencing. So James is is telling his readers to master their thoughts so that they can consider trials pure joy. Because again, trials are not an end in themselves. That's why there's joy. So I think it, it challenges us if we have a bent toward being spiritual Eeyores or Debbie Downers, like, I'm just getting through life. No big deal, just guess I'm glad to be here. And at the same time, we're not spiritual ostriches. We don't bury our head in the sand, deny what's going on around us. Like if I don't see it, I don't hear it, it's not happening. Rather, we consider the trials that we're going through pure joy because they produce something, which I'll come back to. So why does James say to consider pure joy, trials pure joy? And what are these trials? The trials are opportunity to see the Lord's hand. And I think from James's perspective, what he's saying is that these trials are done by the enemy. That's why this word, depending on the context, can also be translated temptations. He's saying many kinds because he's not limiting them, many kinds of trials. They're not limited to type or to importance. So we go through physical trials, emotional trials, spiritual trials, or relational trials. Those are all ways for the enemy to tempt us. He also says, consider it pure joy when you face Trials of many kinds. That word face actually means to fall into. So he's saying it's not, a, it's not your fault. It is no fault of the person who is in the trial. 
So a, a reason for us to consider it pure joy is because the enemy is actively opposing us and what God wants to do in our lives. If you are ever given the opportunity to teach on trials, don't do it. All right, don't walk away, run. Okay, Here, here's why. This past week, my wife and I were uh, in southern Utah celebrating my wife's second 39th birthday. Yeah. Had a great time. There were a, a few... A few, not no relational challenges, really. It was great, great time. A few out, things outside. Our last full day there, four o'clock in the afternoon, broad daylight, driving down the road, and it's like a three-lane road. We're farthest, farthest lane. Carrie just all of a sudden goes, "Oh no, oh no, oh no!" And I'm like, "What's going on?" And I see out of the corner of my eye, there's this deer running straight toward us. Okay. All right, before I go any further, if this was an, a sporting event, all right, clearly I'm in the right, okay? I have established position, and this deer is coming, and I kind of last second realize that I slow down as much as I can, kind of pull, I'm moving away from the, the deer. It runs into us. I did not hit the deer. The deer hit me. I, like I said, I was established in my lane, it was clearly a charge, pass interference, whatever sport you like. It was a foul on the deer. And, it, like, you know those moments you, everything just really slows down for you? Like, I'm looking over. The deer and I make eye contact. And the deer's like, what are you doing here? I'm like, what are you doing here? You're not supposed to be here. This is the road. I'm in a car. You're a deer. There's a meadow over there. Lots of room to run. You're in the wrong. I don't think that happens if I'm, teaching, if I'm not teaching on trials. Oh, that's all I'm saying. So that's, that's, that's the free one. If you get a chance to teach on trials, don't do it. Oh, oh, you want to know the rest of the story. Fortunately, no major damage. It just hits the side mirror, like bends it forward, breaks the mirror, but that was it. So no, no major damage to the car. Uh, the deer did not die. I saw it in it. Well, I wouldn't have cared either way dumb deer. I look in the rear view mirror, it's like it's kind of scrambling to its hooves and tries running away. Uh, venison is really good. That's all I'm saying. I'll, I'll stop there. All right. So we see the first part of rejoicing in the midst of trials because they have our a purpose is our mindset. James is addressing our mindset. The second part is that trials produce something. In verse 3, James goes on to say, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. So a positive reason for considering trials of many kinds uh, to be pure joy. Th this is why. Because the testing of our faith produces perseverance. Trials produces perseverance. Two key words here, testing and perseverance. When, when we read about testing 
in the Bible. Do not think school. All right? This is not the school testing like A, B, C, D, or F. Okay? We, we will not stand before the Lord one day and be like, you know, I really thought you were going to be an A, B Christian. You're more like a C minus. Sorry. The testing, testing is about revealing who we are. So think antique roadshow. Have you ever seen that? The person finds like a, a hidden treasure that was maybe in a relative's home or they dug up somewhere and they bring it into an expert. And the expert looks at it and says, oh, this is authentic. This is worth thousands of dollars. Or else they say, it's just a cheap replica. I'm sorry. It's worth maybe 10 bucks. That's what testing does. It, re- it reveals the authenticity of our faith. <clears throat> so each time we go through a trial, it's an opportunity to see the purity of our faith. Trials serve that purpose of, re- of revealing the authenticity and the, the purity of our faith. The other key word, as I said, is perseverance. So faith plus trials equals perseverance. I love this word perseverance. It actually was commonly used in a military setting. And what it had to do with is standing your ground. So you see the enemy approaching and you stand your ground. You're not going to retreat. You're not going to run away. You're going to stay there and endure whatever the enemy is going to send your way. You're not allowing the enemy to advance. Have you ever had a time in your life when you feel like you're not making progress? Well, if you're still standing, you're persevering. Not every day are we going to advance. But if you're persevering, if you're standing your ground, you're winning. Our perseverance is rooted in hope. I've I've shared this before. I probably will every time hope is brought up. But remember, when in the Bible, hope is not wishful thinking. Okay? It's not, man, I hope the Colts win today. Hope in the scriptures is about certainty of a future event. Certainty of a, a future event, and we're just waiting for the outcome. So our hope is that one day Jesus is going to he's going to put everything right. Whatever is the biggest hurdle in your life or the greatest evidence of darkness in the world, one day Jesus will, will put it right. He will show that he's overcome it. He's already overcome that thing, but one day we'll be able to see it. Perseverance is one of the greatest virtues in the kingdom of God. A picture of this, for me, is Captain America. Captain America, if you know the story, Steve Rogers physically was a weak, small, frail person, but his heart was huge. He had a ton of courage. He was brave. He stood up. For other people, if he felt like they were wronged, if you've seen the first Captain America, there's a part before he becomes a super soldier that he's, he's standing up to two guys and they keep knocking him down. They keep knocking him down. He gets up. They knock him down. He gets up. 
They're like, aren't you just going to stay down? And he says, I can do this all day. And that's, and that's a recurring line throughout the movies. I can do this all day. So James is saying that when trials meet faith in Jesus, it produces, I can do this all day. Right? As long as we keep, we get knocked down, we keep, keep getting back up, we're persevering. So again, this, the second point, part of rejoicing in the midst of trials, because they have a purpose, is that trials produce something. They produce perseverance. The last thing that we see from our passage this morning is that trials have an end. So we just saw that they produce perseverance. Now we see that there's a goal, an end, or a telos, if you're familiar at all with Greek or philosophy. So trials, they lead to perseverance. Perseverance leads to a place of maturity. The finished work of perseverance is maturity and completeness. As I said at the beginning, life is difficult, and it's a lot more difficult if you're immature. That's why we go through trials. The reason, or, or rather, what our Heavenly Father most desires for us, the reason that Jesus died for us, and why the Holy Spirit dwells within us now, is to bring us to a place of being mature and complete. Remember, Jesus, as fully God and fully man, not only showed us what God is like, perfectly shows us what God is like, he also shows us what it, uh, the ideal human is like. Jesus shows us what it means to be human. And actually, being like Jesus is what the early church desired, and they actually thought it was possible. The way they wrote and has been preserved in our New Testament, they thought it was actually possible to be like Jesus. The rest of the epistle shows what a mature and complete person looks like. He or she pursues wisdom from above, resists temptation, does what the scriptures say, treats everyone the same, that is, without favoritism, unites faith in good deeds. He or she tames the tongue, submits to God. Again, worship and obedience are inseparable from a biblical perspective and shows submission to God. He or she is patient and prays for others. Being that type of person is entirely possible with the Holy Spirit and with grace. So he goes on to say that no matter what you're facing, you will not be lacking anything. Now, I'm not going to steal any of Randy's thunder because he's going to talk about this next week, but, but it does lead into James saying, so if any of you do lack wisdom, ask God. Hopefully, we all have somebody in our lives who reminds us of Jesus. Maybe a mentor, a relative, a teacher, or a pastor that you just thought, I don't know, I think they might be confused with Jesus. 
that because of who they are, that they've grown to a place of being mature and complete, that they looked a lot like Jesus. And it wasn't faked. Spent too much time with them to know that it was authentic. A good friend of mine uh, has done uh, ministry over in Africa at different times. And uh, one of the, his most recent times was with his ministry partner um, who's a, who lives in the country where he goes to work. And the, this partner took him to meet uh, this old widow. Um, and, and as my friend was recounting meeting this woman, he had tears were running down his face. He said, because she had nothing, absolute poverty. There was nothing in her home. She barely had clothes to, to cover her body, and yet she welcomed these two men in and served them and loved them. And he just said, I've never felt the holiness of God like I did on this woman. Though she lacked from a material perspective, she lacked nothing. So again, the third part of rejoicing in the midst of trials, because they have a purpose, is trials have an end. Friends, the last thing that I want you to hear, meaning I hope you are not hearing this from me, is try harder. That's not it. So we read through James. There's no sense of, hey, just get your life together. Try harder. Rather, it points us to Jesus. Jesus met trials of various kinds. He was accused of being an illegitimate son. As I mentioned earlier, his mom and siblings thought he was out of his mind. The religious leaders opposed him at every turn. People loved him to a certain point until he taught the wrong thing, healed the wrong person, or challenged why they were following him. So that's why he's able to sympathize with us with whatever we're going through and how he can use the trials of many kinds to produce this maturity-forming perseverance. So as we close, we see that the, this epistle from James is a, is a highly practical message to a, a group of believers. He's addressing believing communities. And so I think for us this morning, that's one of the steps we can take. We mentioned small groups this morning. We've got various ministries uh, at this church. And so what I want to encourage you, challenge you into, if you haven't already, find your people. Because the ability to become the type of person that James is talking about actually increases when we have our people. When we know the tribe that we're a part of, when we, we have those, what I'm calling it, 3 a.m. friends. You know, what I mean? you know what I'm talking about? Something big happens, and they're the ones you have no problem calling at 3 a.m. By the way, I just aged myself doing this, didn't I? Because the younger people are like, what is that? This, this is how you hold the phone. (laughs) 
So again, the, the ability to be the type of person that James is talking about actually increases when we have our people. Because there's going to be times that you don't have the faith to get through the trial that you're facing. And you need to leverage the faith of your people to get through it. And there's going to be times that somebody who is a part of your people doesn't have the faith to get through what they're going through, and they need to leverage your faith. And so when we think that we can't stand, they help us stand up. And when they think that they can't stand, we help them to stand up. So again, we can rejoice in the midst of trials because they have a purpose. James talked about trials and our mindset, how trials produce perseverance, and they have a goal to make us mature and complete, not lacking anything. So I want us to respond to this. We'll go into our ministry time. So Amy, if you could come up, or Kara. Um, and anybody on uh, our ministry team, if you can come forward. <clears throat> so, um, with regard to trials, <clears throat> I think probably some of us, if we're going through something right now, might be tempted to believe the lie that we've been abandoned by God. And so the Lord wants to remind you that he has not abandoned you. He is with you. I think, at least for me, maybe, maybe this uh, resonates for you as well. A lot of times I might go to, is there unconfessed sin in my life? Right? But what James is saying, these trials are not because of anything that we've done. So I just want to speak over, it's not because of some unrepentant sin. Rather, so you're not abandoned by God, this is not because of sin. Rather, the enemy is opposing you. And so, if you don't have the faith for this right now, leverage the faith of these individuals up here and come and, and get prayer. Also, as I spoke with regard to perseverance, I get the sense that there's some here this morning who feel weak. Like, I, I can't stand much longer. And so as it talks about in, in Hebrews, strengthening the knees and the ankles. So come get prayer to maybe physically or at least spiritually have your knees or ankles strengthened this morning. If you, uh, we've got some prophetic words that Delane is going to share. Um, but again, if, if you have any other emotional, physical, spiritual needs, we are more than happy to pray for those as well.